Well, hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America and right there on your podcast app, thanks to Podcasting 2.0. I am uh, Yael Lasoski, tuning in now, coming to you from Hotlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, David is off for this week, but uh, figured we'd you know get back on the mic. We've got some important stuff to talk about. Uh, you can always go back and listen to our archive over there at ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, and, and hopefully you are subscribed and being able to, to listen in. So, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, coming to you from Atlanta, I'm here for the uh, ALEC Conference, the American Legislative Exchange Council. A lot of important stuff being discussed for consumer choice. Figured we had to be here, had to be present. There's a lot of different issues that will be uh, presented on, and you have a lot of state lawmakers present uh, who are trying to improve uh, the laws that they'll be passing in their states. Hopefully we can provide some input. Uh, but I got to tell you, great to be in Atlanta. Atlanta's a great town, very interesting city, uh, one of my favorite, uh, particularly in the American South. A uh, great place. If you if you haven't been here, maybe you've been here, you've heard of uh, the Coca-Cola bottling factory or uh, just some of the great historical sites. But overall, Atlanta, interesting town. You know, this is uh, for you Yimby folks out there. Yes, in my backyard, uh, which is ever present a concern, uh, particularly in Canadian politics, also a little bit at the local level. Um, Atlanta's not the best uh, for that. I mean, you do have a public transit system, the MARTA, uh, but the downtown, where I, I principally am, uh, yeah, ain't much going on. You can walk around. I might get hit by a car or two, but you know, you got some nice big buildings, hotels, and all the rest. Uh, but most of the cool stuff is happening a bit in the outer boroughs. Uh, so there's a uh, you know nice little towns, little independent cities uh, that kind of spring up in the suburbs of Atlanta, which is kind of interesting. Uh, definitely, we could have a whole episode on everything that's happening in Atlanta. But uh, just a, a great place to be. Uh, interesting folks who are in town. Uh, also able to visit my brother who lives here and uh, works for the soccer team, uh, football for you Europeans, and uh, we're able to, yeah, catch up, see what's going on here, uh, see what the the sports scene is like, the political scene is like. Uh, Atlanta is just a, a great town, uh, one of the most culturally diverse cities, uh, particularly in the American South, and uh, you know there's all kinds of different things that are being discussed today when we talk about the state of the U.S. and you know racial politics. Um, I think Atlanta does pretty well, and that's why it's it's always great to be here. It's a wonderful place, and uh, hopefully you guys can visit. But let's go ahead and go to the headlines. It's a big time for, for consumer choice. Um, yeah, you're going to the store, trying to buy things, and noticing that uh, your bill gets higher and higher. Your paycheck ain't getting any bigger, bigger. And uh, now we have the official numbers. Uh, when we look at the United States, the U.S. economy shrank, according to the Wall Street Journal, shrank and annualized 0.9% last quarter. That's the second straight quarterly decline in GDP, which by all indications would make this a recession in the recession. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been in the bull market, you know, a bit too long. And, uh, you know, now we got to go back to, to being a bear. So... This is, uh, according to you know all of the economists, normally you would say this is a recession. Um, you've probably already heard incessantly people talk about this, but it's a bit crazy because you know you have all of the uh, establishment elite in Washington D.C. that have somehow cajoled 
uh, the press corps to redefine what a recession means so that uh, essentially while all the numbers are down, uh, while we have inflation peaking at levels we haven't seen in 40 years, it's not a recession, folks. Head back inside. Everything is safe. You're going to be okay. And uh, we have exactly the same thing happening in Canada. Look, we just have a worldwide contraction. And we're seeing the impact of all of the spending that was done during COVID times, all of the bailouts. Uh, there's you know, just another bailout bill that was passed in the U.S. Senate having to do with semiconductors and production capacity as a way to you know, try to go against the Chinese and, and all of the different semiconductors that they're building. You know, there's just a lot of money that's been sloshing around. Maybe it hasn't found its way into your wallet, uh, but uh, definitely found its way into different companies, uh, a lot of people with political connections, and the politicians have kept spending and spending and spending. Uh, we've we've had Franco Terenzano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation on a couple of times who's documented this very well in Canada and exactly what Trudeau has done there, particularly with the market. It's been a bit crazy because lately... We, we haven't had too many voices calling for restraint. There's been a lot of focus on the Federal Reserve, Bank of Canada, you know, rates. I think all of that is, it's important to note for those who are in the political know, it's a little hard to understand for those on the street. And, you know, we try to speak to the everyman here at Consumer Choice Radio, sort of our mission, focusing on consumer choice and advocating for you. And it's just so difficult to try to navigate these economic waters because there's so much that's being conflated, things that are being changed, definitions, you know, wordsmith politics that are being played, when realistically people just ain't doing too well. If you're a young person and you've been trying to buy a house, it has not looked too good for you the last couple of years. Uh, we do see rates going up, which is going to make borrowing more expensive. Will that mean that home prices go down? We could hope. We've seen small dips in, in some areas, but really not enough to, to to make anything any kind of boon. So it meant that uh, you, me, and everyone else, we got to just stay in our apartments or we got to move out to the rural parts, and that's where we can actually get our property. So there's going to be much more to come from um, the governments about, you know, what is the different angles, what are they going to do, the plans. Look, we've, we've had a lot of spending, we've had a lot of money uh, that has been taken from your paychecks to pay for certain things, and it's made it more difficult, you know, and that's why we have to try to focus on where innovation is and follow innovation, and anywhere where they're trying to essentially contract and constrict a lot of our innovative prowess, you know, this ain't a good thing, and we hopefully can get a bit more control. I mean, there's a lot of different topics that we cover on Consumer Choice Radio um, I did have on one article I wanted to highlight uh, that I had published in the Washington Examiner this week. Uh, this has to do with uh, everything related to the lawsuits on climate change and emissions. So this is pretty important uh, because we have this energy crunch. The energy crunch is very present throughout the European continent. And for our European friends, you know, having to pay sometimes 20%, 30% more on their energy bills, the ongoing war in Ukraine uh, launched by Russia, which we can, uh, we'll actually examine with our guest, uh, Matthew Mazinskis, in the next segment. But when we have the uh, large oil and gas companies, you know, that are providing all of the things that we need to heat our homes, to power our vehicles, 
uh, and essentially fuel our everyday lives, you know, we would think that we'd try to make it so that we would have the lowest prices possible. You know, you're going to the pump and you're paying in the in the states. You go to California, you pay seven dollars a gallon. Uh, you know, in your different parts of Canada, you're paying, you know, two, three Canadian dollars a liter. Multiply that by four. It's tough. It's hard. And when you have less disposable income, that means you're essentially less free as a family. You're less free as an individual. There ain't so much that you can do. And your savings are being chewed away. Uh, stock market was essentially has been doing very poorly for about three or four months. It's uh, got better in the last two days just because they raised the rates. But, you know, it's, it's not helping out, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack, who's just trying to survive on his on his small income and his small investments. Uh, so the article that I that I wrote had focused really on the lawsuits that are being launched by different state attorneys generals in the United States, particularly against oil and gas companies. And this has to do with emissions. So there's uh, many different lawsuits. The, I guess the most present ones are in Hawaii and California. Uh, there probably will be some from other states. And we have seen there's a, a sort of gaggle of different attorneys general from throughout the U.S. and more progressive states that have bandied together and, and trying to sue the different oil and gas companies for the emissions. Now, I think what is what we just have to recognize here is it's not as if these companies, oil and gas companies, are just you know spewing stuff out into the ether, into the atmosphere for no reason. This represents our energy use. You are the energy they want to reduce. Uh, the energy that is being used for by us, by our businesses, by our homes, by our vehicles, everything that every time you go to the pump and put gas in your vehicle, you know, you're sort of contributing to this. And it does have to do with climate change and human impact. And there are many people who would love to have, you know, the state courts in the United States decide how much we should penalize these companies for providing us energy. And as a consumer, as someone who has to pay some of these bills, I know you're feeling the crunch right now. But if we have lawsuits, you know, in the tens of billions of dollars that are put on these companies, we know what these companies do because it's the same in every cycle. It's the same every time. The costs are raised. The costs are passed on to you as the consumer. So does that mean higher prices at the pump? You know, not immediately. But it will mean that there will be extra costs that will be factored into that. They have to find that money from somewhere. So eventually prices will go up and prices will be paid by you as the consumer. And, well, I don't know what that dog's about. And that's what is making it so difficult, you know, to understand a lot of these different political actors who are, are trying to provide an answer for what we do in the energy space, what we do with climate change. I know there are a lot of answers to climate change. There's a lot of different debates that you can have. I think there's a lot of innovative solutions that are currently being tried. I mean, just look at Tesla, look at Elon Musk, look at uh, different innovations that are happening with all different types of energy, with natural gas, with nuclear energy, which is banned across most of the European Union. And we haven't really built anything or approved anything new in the United States in almost 40 years. There's all kinds of innovation that's there. We just aren't necessarily leaning in on that. You know, we want to kind of go back to the past and penalize and have fees and fines and lawsuits and billions of dollars. 
and that's only going to make things more expensive. Somebody has to pay the cost. It's not as if all the companies are just sitting on tens of billions of dollars in cash with nothing to do. They are providing a product or a service that we use as consumers, that you use, that I use. We use it to power our car. We use it to power our homes, have air conditioning. Uh, just, just a note on that, being back in the U.S. here for a little bit, um, you know, you North Americans, y'all know how to do that air conditioning. I have not had air conditioning you know, for a long time, so being able to enjoy it, you know, bouncing back and forth uh, between certain places has been amazing. And um, yeah, probably probably leads to just, I don't know, so much more productivity because you're able to actually stay cool. And yeah, there's probably some economic study that's been done on that. Uh, but, you know, that's a big advantage of using energy. And I don't think we need to be afraid of that. And I think, you know, consumers know and, you know, while we all would love to have solar panels out on our back deck and being able to power our homes and, you know, switch to a completely renewable source, you know, the innovation just isn't there yet. You know, we'd love to do as much as we can to support it. And I think people like Elon Musk are doing a great job. Uh, there's a lot of great innovators that you even see on YouTube, you know, who are putting together nice little solar panels in their backyards and showing how to do batteries. And there's all kinds of tinkering that's happening. And that will be the innovative force in the 21st century. And I think that's great. Are we going to have our answer from lawsuits that are launched by Democratic state attorneys general to try to punish, putting that in air quotes, punish different oil and gas companies for having us as consumers? I think that's uh, pretty wrongheaded. And, you know, hopefully in the U.S. we can have a simpler solution, uh, likely among the federal courts or Supreme Court at some point, figuring out, you know, who just actually is responsible for emissions. What do we do? Should we just create a marketplace? You know, there's a lot of great different economic solutions that have been proposed there. And there's just much more that could be done. But unfortunately, we just haven't had that type of thinking. It all goes back to lawsuits. Uh, that's what we do in the U.S. If uh, we don't have our way or if we want to force a particular issue, we go to the courts. We sue everybody into oblivion, and hopefully we can get tens of billions of dollars out of that. Uh, there's all kinds of newsletters you can always sign up for, you know, join the, the latest class action lawsuit. We've worked on that a good amount here at Consumer Choice Center. You can go to our website, consumerchoicecenter.org, and learn more about it. Um, so I promised you we'd talk a little bit about energy in Europe. Uh, so we're going to bring on Matthew Mazinskis. He's a great uh, economic researcher. We're going to talk about what's happening in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, um, all focus on that, and a little bit about uh, you know cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, and whether or not it could be a solution. So you guys stay tuned here on Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America on Saga 960 AM and on the Big Talker Network. Yael Ososki here flying solo uh, while our colleague David Clement is uh, apparently at some cabin in northern Ontario having a great time and enjoying a little bit of the early spring weather. Uh, but we're going to have a good convo here. We're speaking with Matthew Mazinskis. He is the host of Crypto Voices, a podcast on economics and money. He's a man who knows finance, he knows spreadsheets, uh, he knows a little bit about the global monetary base. So, uh, Matthew, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Yeah, my friend, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here and chat a little bit of Bitcoin, a little bit of Ukraine, a little bit of free markets with you. I love this because, um, you know, obviously we met some years ago 
And, you know, I've been following you on Twitter, seeing a little bit what you were writing about, seeing some of your programs, um, listening to the interviews that you were conducting, and started realizing that a lot of us was, was just coming together. And, uh, you know, you, you are uh, brandishing the American Eagle in Europe, much like I am. Uh, we are um, a, a small group of innocents abroad, but I think we, we do an okay job. Um, I guess we can start with that a little bit because uh, you're someone who has keenly followed everything that's happened in Ukraine. We've had a number of interviews on our program about it. Um, same for you. Uh, what's it been like you know, seeing this situation? And then the second part of that is, what's it like seeing our fellow Americans uh, discussing the topics of Ukraine and Russia and, and seemingly having a more cartoonish uh, version of that uh, conversation? Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, based on, you know, the uh, location of your uh, shows being broadcast, I think maybe start with that, that second part of that question. Uh, you know, a lot of people have heard a lot about Ukraine, maybe people have already tuned out, uh, specifically in the United States. But I think if, you know, you're talking about consumer choice and libertarians and classical liberals, which I imagine there's a lot of big, you know, contingency in your listener base, uh, often, I find that Americans uh, just have a completely different worldview than European libertarians, classical liberals. And there's obvious reasons for that, you know, geography first and foremost. Um, so that's, that's just always a battle, I think, that we're going to have to face when we're talking about, you know, our ideal society that may be uh, completely in theory or might happen when we're all rich and have private insurance and private security and good money and, you know, very low cost energy thousand years from now, hundred years from now, who knows? Um, and then what's on the ground and what's happening in 2022. So uh, two completely different things. I think, I think, you know, if you're a Texas libertarian, you might be living well, unless it's like in the winter sometimes when you have like your, your grid go down from a couple inches of snow. But uh, other than that, I think Texas libertarians are uh, a little bit different. Uh, that's just the example I use uh, for the Twitter, the Twitter scene, you know, of, of someone who just doesn't want to hear anything about what's happening in Ukraine or why they should help or need to help or why the United States government might need to help or what's the proper role of national defense, all the rest. So um, that's sort of my general take uh to your second point and you know as for the first point about um just what's happening there yeah i mean just a quick background on myself i'm you know american latvian i've been in the baltic states here in eastern europe for about 16 years um you know it's part of my family upbringing the follow the soviet union you know rioting not rioting protesting during the late 80s early 90s when i didn't know anything about it I was quite young but still was going to these rallies uh just sort of the story of my life nobody in my school had any idea what latvia was uh, when i was telling them about it when i was young nor do they even now <laughs> so um you know it's just kind of the story of my life and and it's it's pretty unnerving for all of us and it was since 2014 to be sure for all of us here in eastern europe um, Eastern and Central Europe and certainly other parts of Europe um, to see what has happened to the people of Ukraine, to see this Russian aggression, full out war uh, that has happened uh, since February 24th. And so we're just doing everything we can to prevent it, to donate, to spread uh, correct info about it and to, you know, just try to stop this 
completely unlawful and just awful, awful war that the kleptocratic Kremlin is is putting on. So uh, yeah, I don't know. It's I could go on and on and on, but maybe I'll stop there. I, I think for what I found the most troubling in all of this, and you know, I'm not necessarily a, uh, a revisionist of the Austrian Empire or anything like this, uh, living here in Vienna, but I think for most people are just not making the connection that you know these are real people's lives that are being impacted. That you know they will have no more home. Their home will be bombarded. You know their their streets where they used to walk, their dogs or you know play with their kids uh, will be flattened, will be charred. And I think there's just not that much of a connection. I think everyone has this knee jerk, you know, about the global war on terror and Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and these are countries that most people had never been to nor heard of. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, Ukraine, and at least for Austrians, you know, there's a part of that that used to be in the empire, you know, that they used to be come down here to the parliament and engage, and it was part of the empire. And uh, you had the, the cultural exchange and the language exchange. And then to see the images today of tanks rolling in, of bombs and, and entire villages being leveled, um, at least as someone who tries to participate in the American system, you know, tries to have some influence there, it, it's just been, it's been very daunting. And I can understand that Americans are far from everything, but, you know, we've built a global empire. Uh, you might not like it, but we already do have troops uh, all throughout the NATO countries and have them all over the world. And to see how the debate has kind of carried on, uh, you can see that a lot of people are just not very well informed. And as you stated, don't really uh, know much, uh, much less about Ukraine than, you know, Latvia or anything else. Uh, mm. But I, I'm hoping that, you know, seeing a lot more of this, people will understand that, you know, there actually is a need to have uh, some kind of, of help, whether it's organized privately uh, or publicly. And I know that privately there's so many things going on and, and really helping a lot of people out in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I would just encourage every listener, like this fight is far from over. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, even if they succeed in getting the Russians to re retreat, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I mean, there's going to be a massive hangover. Ukrainians are going to be angry, you know, at the world for be being slow to come to their defense. And then when they finally did, you know, uh, just still have all of these... Uh, just crazy geopolitical debates that they're going to have to deal with. Whereas the real picture, like you said, is basic human rights, sovereignty, their liberty, their freedom. And we need to support them all we can. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be like the, the new challenge for Europe, for sure. Um, every, you know, lines are literally being re redrawn. I mean, uh, the geopolitical structure of the world is being rethought and it's going to have implications for China. Uh, it's going to have lots and lots of implications in the future. So yeah, it's just a huge, huge deal. And one more just quick uh, piece there, which I think you see uh, back to the libertarian sort of debate or classical liberal debate. And you have this from, I'd say, just general uh, Republican versus Democrat or how, how should we sort of view this whole situation in Ukraine? One of the typical bugaboo sort of easy uh let's not get involved type of narratives when the war started let's not forget which was not too long ago and even up until now was well the west just forced this on russia because uh places where i am former soviet union three baltic states which 
were never, their occupation by the Soviet Union was never recognized by the United States, the United Nations, or many, many other countries in the world uh, since 1945. And uh, th they said, oh, well, we just pushed, uh, we pushed the, uh, the Russians into this situation because they had to think about their own security uh, apparatus and, you know, from the Baltics entering NATO, which, by the way, was in 2004. It was a long time ago. Like, you know, there can be lower level in infantrymen and women that are starting now to serve in the NATO army that were you know, not even born, a twinkle in their father's eye uh, in 2004. It's a long time. It's not like we've just been, you know, this is something that was a surprise to Putin. So there's just so many things to, to talk about there. But lo and behold, uh, now come May, this this perennial discussion of uh, Baltic uh, Baltic security between uh, Sweden and Finland, the two neutral countries. Now they are getting ready, and as far as I can tell, unless things are blocked by the Turks and in, uh, in, in by, by the by Turkey in the in sort of the near future, I'm pretty sure they're going to to be in NATO. And that's a you know that's a major shift for both countries. Uh, you know we don't have to go into that history, but 200 year policy shift for Sweden, Finland. You know with the Winter War and everything, I and mean, that's a major major shift. And of course, we can joke about Vladimir Putin's, uh, you know, master strategy of trying to protect the Russians. And here we go, uh, Finland and Sweden about to join NATO. But where's the uh, where's the ruckus about that? Like, oh, they the Kremlin tries to say, like, oh, well, actually, we don't really care that much. You know, don't bring too many missiles in there, but we don't actually care that they're joining NATO. And so you can see this just doltish debate about NATO expansion, aggressive NATO expansion that Americans were trying to entertain because they had nothing, they had no other concept of the area, the history of the people or the culture. It was a complete red herring. It's a complete, it's just a complete red herring. Uh, Finland and Sweden, you know, Finland shares, you know, th thousands of kilometers of border with Russia, much more of an expansion uh, with them joining NATO than Ukraine. And so, you know, it's such a big deal. It's such a big deal that, you know, the West was expanding. That's that's just the narrative has just completely fallen flat on its face. And uh, we can see that really what it all came down to was Putin's just megalomaniacal views of the Slavic people. And he did not like since the color revolutions of 2004, uh, when, you know, Ukraine started to move towards the West. And of course, in 2014, he just did not like that and he couldn't handle it. And he's a maniacal dictator and he's just showing his true colors so it was never about nato expansion it was just about a crazy crazy small man's dreams well speaking of that uh i think i have the perfect transition clip uh thanks to our friend bill maher putin is bad very 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 bad but he's still better than the guy who brings every conversation around to bitcoin and that's <laughs> going to be us today ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> i love that quote yes very true. Uh, so, so uh, Matthew, your podcast is Crypto Voices. Um, you know, you've been doing this for many years now. You've been analyzing uh, the different macroeconomic trends and also the technology side of, uh, of Bitcoin, uh, everything else. I mentioned uh, before we started recording uh, something about podcasting 2.0 and I uh, wanted to know if you'd entertain a, you know, a little 30 second pitch here, if that's cool. Yes. Please. All right. So Consumer Choice Radio, we are podcasting 2.0 compliant. Uh, what that means is that you download a modern podcast app uh, that includes Fountain or Breeze. And in these podcast apps, you actually do have a Lightning Bitcoin wallet where you can receive Satoshis. 
And while you're listening to a program, you can send messages or you can send boosts boost uh, to the program that you're listening to. Uh, you can also set a listening level so you can send, you know, whatever, 60 sats per minute. Uh, you can do a boost one time of a couple of thousand. Uh, it's, it's a great uh, open source, uh, you know, new interface for how, how Bitcoin is kind of changing things and for podcasting uh, would be great uh, for your program as well. And it'd be a great way for, for you to get a, a nice little Bitcoin node uh, lit up with some sats could be kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Streaming sats. I'm, uh, it's shameful that I haven't gotten around to that on the show, but, uh, we'll, uh, you know, we have like on Twitter, I got, you know, the lightning, uh, lightning addresses and whatnot, but yeah, doing, doing, uh, podcasting 2.0 is probably necessary, but, um, yeah, it's been, it's been, uh, a different focus as of late for the show. I've been doing a little bit more research into, um, into a lot of economic stuff, probably will start streaming soon on on youtube uh in case any listeners are curious uh talking a little bit more less about maybe maybe bitcoin only or bitcoin proper and and just talking about uh sort of general economic stuff geopolitical stuff some of the things we were just speaking about with ukraine uh and then of course always in the background how bitcoin can uh can help there so so yeah that's just a little bit about what what i've been doing lately so i I know you're aware of uh the bitcoin twitter world and i know there there's you know sort of an ongoing rhetorical battle about uh crypto versus bitcoin uh you know as an organization you know it is something that we do lobby on uh we don't necessarily make a distinction because i don't think politicians know much of the of the difference anyway uh but you know that is something that a lot of people are very passionate about and i understand it and we all might be you know, maxis in our basements with our miners and our nodes. Uh, but when we're dealing with policy, it's a bit different. I uh, was just sort of wondering, you know, was there a time when you were more interested also in altcoins? Are you still interested in them? Or are you focused solely, you know, with laser eyes on, on Bitcoin and the innovations that are happening there as an alternative uh, to our current monetary system? Well, most of my interest is in Bitcoin, uh, specifically as it relates to the alternative to the current monetary system, as you said. So, it's a, it's more more heavily focused on the economic aspect on how it relates to you know uh, the, the actual central bank printing uh, the monetary base gold silver so on and so forth uh, Bitcoin is just the the big elephant in the room there that uh, completely is economically analogous with those types of instruments a lot of other altcoins even Ethereum second largest has different features that don't necessarily give it those base money qualities. We can talk about that. So from that side, it's, it's only Bitcoin, but from the other side, you know, yeah, there's this whole debate for a long time about Bitcoin maximalists. Um, I don't really know how I would uh, define myself, but I, I think a lot of libertarians, they're not necessarily Bitcoin maximalists. They're open to anything that can come and help the freedom of the individual. If they can, if that can, you know, expand, and widen their uh their you know their their own lives then like go for it so i kind of like that view but on the other hand you know it's kind of like nasim taleb's like don't don't uh tell me show me show me your portfolio uh for sure bitcoin is is uh pretty much <laughs> yeah not majority there so it's really not yeah, yeah I, I don't i don't have any affinity toward any particular altcoin yeah, and I think so many of these projects, um, you know, we've been introduced to them uh, through just a lot of, of great entrepreneurial people, you know, who are definitely trying to change things and shake things up. And 
Uh, sure. You know, everyone sees Bitcoin a bit uh, sometimes as boring. And I've, I heard your Bitcoin story, I think, on, on one other show that you were on. And I think is very much the same for, for many of us. We got really excited in the beginning. And then you got all these other things that are flashing by and things are crazy. And then uh, usually it seems like the natural life arc is to kind of come back to the, to the boring Bitcoin stuff, uh, especially yeah. once we've seen the innovations. And, you know, the lightning part that I was mentioning with podcasting 2.0, uh, you know, seeing the ability to use that when I get my hair cut, for instance, or, you know, tonight I'm going to the big meetup uh, in Vienna of the Bitcoiners and, and buying beer with lightning and uh, trying to run a node and do liquidity. And uh, I realized that there's so much that that is happening there that I think most people just don't know because they, they just focus on online go up. And uh, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, uh, the line hadn't been going up at all. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on sort of the uh, Terra USD stablecoin? Uh, some of the the broader moves in the crypto market is this something that uh, you, as a sort of macroeconomic analyst, uh, sees as as perhaps a, a good thing because it's a little bit of consolidation, or is this the big players moving in? You know, how do you read that? Yeah, yeah. Well, my own personal philosophy is kind of long term, very much how like a gold or silver investor might look at it. Um, that's, that is how I look at the Bitcoin market. Um, those that want to play and speculate and short and use a lot of futures and leverage, um, obviously free to do so free to do so with crazy altcoins, which, uh, as we've seen, Terra has proven, uh, Luna has proven to be, um, for those that don't know, is basically a, a Ponzi scheme wrapped around another Ponzi scheme. <laughs> There's a component of it, which was called Anchor, and they were just offering crazy interest rates on uh, on TUSD, which is, you know, stable coin to the dollar. And then people were taking uh, those staked, uh, uh, well, they were taking the, uh, the the asset that was backing those uh, those loans and then reinvesting that into more, uh, more of the TUSD and, and likewise, uh, again and again. And so it eventually all collapsed and there was, uh, yeah, quite a big, uh, blow up in the markets, like really massive. I mean, I saw a tweet, I think it was Enron was something like 60 billion in market cap and, uh, Luna might have been 40. Uh, so anyway, numbers aren't too important at that level because now they're all zero. But um, it was massive, massive uh, boom and bust uh, based on speculation and a Ponzi scheme. And yeah, so it gives a lot of fuel to the fire for regulators, which is unfortunate, and people that don't understand the market, which is unfortunate. But these things, as I look at them, are really just a dime a dozen. I mean, they're going to come again and again and again. You got to have your eye on the prize, which is, in my view, just living a good life having a stable currency that you can uh, rely on. Yes, it's going to be volatile because we're only 11, 12 years into this process, 13 years into this process, actually. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's something to keep an eye on a lot of the market volatility and how things move. I definitely think it's going to be pretty weak over the next, uh, the next six to 12 months. Doesn't look very strong at all the way that markets are, reacting to this event um but you know our lower we typically see lower lows or excuse me higher lows and higher highs in bitcoin so we might be moving to one of these low periods we certainly are in the, in the short short term in a low but you know thirty thousand dollar bitcoin is still 
you know, that's 30, that's uh, three times more than it was two years ago. So, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to be too bearish when, if you just extend your horizon from 10 minutes to, you know, to 10 months, you know, things look okay. So I'm, I'm not too worried about it, but again, it, it's all about the perspective that you take when it comes to sort of what Bitcoin is and what it's trying to do. And we've, uh, we've seen in probably the last two years, more of a focus and, and actually a, a sort of mainstreaming of the idea of nation states embracing uh, cryptocurrencies, but specifically Bitcoin. And we saw that in El Salvador, uh, where it is now a legal tender. Uh, apparently, you've heard the same in the, the Central African Republic and yeah. uh, some, some Portuguese islands and the like. Uh, you know, as someone who follows, uh, you know, not just global economic trends, but geopolitics, uh, so what do you make of the situation in El Salvador and some of these other countries? And I say this in the context of, I don't even know the name of it, but I know that uh, Bukele has brought together uh, something like 44 finance ministers and central bank governors in El Salvador to, I guess, to orange pill and talk Bitcoin <laughs> to them. Uh, so they're meeting at this moment. Uh, who knows what's coming from that? Uh, but what do you think about nation state adoption? And is that something that we should care about? Do you think it's hopeful or, or do you think it might actually lead to more problems? I think it could lead to more problems in the short term. Uh, I am not one of these Bitcoiners who gets so excited about every single piece of Bitcoin news, least of all when it comes to a central bank, uh, you know, reserving Bitcoin, which as my old co-host Fernando used to say, it's like, uh, it's like the virgin prostitute or something. I don't know when a central bank is holding, uh, you know, holding a lot of gold or holding a lot of Bitcoin. It's just, it's just quite uh, the anathema to what they're actually doing now, which is just printing uh, their own sovereign currency, which is backed by nothing else other than a state monopoly. So Bitcoin, yeah, it might bring in some, uh, some new people to the market, but Bitcoin doesn't, it doesn't care. The protocol itself doesn't care who is using it, uh, who transacts with it. Um, so if we start to cheerlead something like, you know, a few central banks taking it on and then other central banks taking it on, we might start to think that, oh, that's actually how it should be. It should be run by a central bank and held by a central bank. And lo and behold, we're in the exact same situation, which happened uh, to gold and silver, first silver, then gold. Uh, which is not really a favorable position to be in. I mean, uh, gold has basically failed as a as a uh, generally accepted store of value and medium of exchange over the last 100 years. I mean, 100 years ago, it would have not been a crazy thing to talk about, like holding gold or taking gold across the border or whatever. Uh, now, no one even cares to do that. It's, it's certainly dangerous to do that. It's hard to do that. It's expensive to do that with gold and silver always was. But there was, that was accepted that that's what you would do if you were moving or whatever. With Bitcoin, it's super easy to transport your wealth. It's super safe. Uh, you know, in these war-torn areas, if you got to get across a border, you can get across with, you know, a seed memorized in your head. No one can know that you're taking the Bitcoin across the border. It's really, really important uh, monetary media that way. Um, if we start thinking that, like, Bitcoin needs to be held by central banks, that's just the wrong it's the wrong line of thought uh, to me. And, and, I, and I just think this is a, well, let me, let me correct that. I, I, I do think that that could happen in the short term as many people are going to be excited about that. There's going to be more countries that may, maybe even, you know, discriminated against, quote, discriminated against, as Bukele says about you know, the dollar. Like they've never been helping us anyway. They're a dollarized nation that, you know, using the dollar hasn't helped 
El Salvador. So he's, you know, he's saying we got to move to Bitcoin. I understand these sort of statements. But if we start to think that that's like the reason that uh, other central banks should uh, hold Bitcoin, it's it's definitely going to help their citizens and whatnot. I mean, I don't know. Think again, because, you know, there are a lot of these regimes aren't really the uh, least corrupt out there. They have their own issues and Bitcoin is just going to get wrapped up into that. And then there's going to be more regulations in the bigger countries. And it's just, yeah, I'm not, I, what I wanted to, to finish this, put a bow on this is that I think it's going to get worse before it gets better in that arena as well, because I think you're going to have a lot of geopolitical, you know, uh, arguments about that. You're going to have a lot of political arguments about that. People aren't going to understand it. It's going to be regulated. It's not going to be it's held in a safe way for, for legislatures. I know there's new legislation coming up with Senator Loomis, Loomis, who is very favorable towards Bitcoin uh, very soon, this week or next week in the U.S. New legislation coming out. I'm sure, you know, it's going to be a very exciting read to read that. But anyway, like I don't yeah, I don't think that those things are are great for mankind and they're not going to be great for the future of Bitcoin. So it's it's going to be a slog to get through that. But again, you know. 100 years from now, uh, when we're transferring this wealth onto our heirs, to our grandchildren, uh, I really do think that Bitcoin is going to be a world changing technology. Um, but it's going to it's going to take a while to get there. Wow. I, I think I, I definitely echo, uh, you know, your sentiments. You know, we do not spend all this time uh, critiquing the machineries of government and their financial tools only to have them uh, take the technology that uh, you know we've we've developed at the private market and use you know to their to their own devices. Uh, so I, I do think that you know your cautionary uh, sort of example is uh, is a good way to look at it. And uh, you know when we have all of this stuff that's happening, it's better to have innovation coming from private actors and you know people who are out actually providing value instead of of governments and imposing that. Uh, so I, I definitely agree there. I think that's a very strong point. I, you know, there's been far too much cheerleading, uh, particularly when it comes to a lot of uh, what's happening in many of these Central American countries. Uh, yeah, it's kind of strong arm politics. It's uh, not really uh, the most you know liberal of democracies in the world. And I, I want to end on that uh, with at least a, a question about. I don't like the term the West. Uh, but liberal democracies, and for citizens of liberal democracies, and those of us who live here, who work here, uh, you know, what do you see as a, a sort of positive outlook? Whether it be with um, the future of our our alliances, or perhaps growing acceptance of Bitcoin amongst private people, uh, there's got to be just a just a wink of uh, some hope there in your in your mic. Sure, sure. Well, Bitcoin always. You know, we saw last year for the 18th time, China banned Bitcoin and all the crypto and mining and everything, uh, they're not going to be able to do it long term. They're going to try. They're not going to be able to stop it. Uh, it's just a matter of time. You know, I don't want to sound like I'm as prescient as Ludwig von Mises predicting the end of the Soviet Union in 19, the 1920s. Uh, you know, he didn't know either when it would end, but it took 70 years. Who knows how long it's going to take for China? They're not going to be able to stop uh, the power of this technology. So that's important. And I do think it's good that the West or the liberal, liberal democracies are embracing it generally. That is good. Um, as far as uh, Ukraine, I think that's also a huge, huge uh, game changer for just the way that we're looking at security. Again, from, from liberal democracies here, mostly in Europe and the United States. Uh, I'm not 
saying that it's all going to be positive. I'm not saying it's all going to be, you know, safe or easy, but we've been saying for years and years over here that, uh, you know, you just can't get away with doing business like Russia does business, you know, murdering people, killing journalists, uh, you know, Novichok poisoning on British soil. This, these type of things are really, really uh, medieval and barbaric. And they need to, they, you know, you, you can stand up to these things without being a totalitarian gov government yourself. You can be a liberal democracy, a, a liberal, uh, free loving people that wants to stop these types of things and this type of tyranny. And I think it's a refresher for a lot in the West, a lot of people in the Western world. And I'm very happy for, for that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. I've been speaking with Matthew Mazinskis, host of Crypto Voices, uh, also on Twitter, uh, crypto underscore voices. Uh, amazing conversation. Matthew, thanks so much for talking to us on Consumer Choice Radio. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.